Please join me in prayer. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today's Old Testament reading comes from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shechem to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson is Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses known as the Beatitudes, and if you would turn in your bulletin to what's labeled the um, sermon notes, I have had this printed there, which I'll be referring to during the sermon, so you might as well get it out now so that you have it in front of you. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, listen for God's word. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All of us have norms or standards that we have grown up with, some of which we're instructed with and some of which we just learned, like keep your elbows off the dining room table when we're eating 
Don't smack your lips while you're eating. Close your mouth as you eat the food. Study hard and get a degree, and then that way you'll make it in this world. Save your pennies until you have enough money to buy a house, for that will be part of the American dream. If anything's worth doing, it's worth doing right and complete and finished. Many of us have these kind of traditions. Oh, the other one that just got me was you had to be on the verge of going to the emergency room on Sunday morning if you had any thoughts of not going to Sunday school and church. It just didn't happen in our household. Many of us have these traditions. Many of us have these kind of norms and standards that we kind of grew up learning about and living with. And we begin today to see the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry in this chapter of Matthew. And in this chapter, particularly with the Beatitudes, Jesus is trying to create a new set of norms, a new set of standards by which one would live in this kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wanted to be very clear what it meant to be in the kingdom of heaven. It was not just some nice thing to talk about, but it really called us to live life differently. So in good rabbinic style, Jesus goes up the mountain. He sits down. He gathers his disciples around him as well as the crowd around him. And he begins to speak, teaching them. These are all symbols and cues that what he's about to say is really important and you need to listen. The crowd need to listen to him and I think we do as well. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. There's an abbreviated version in the Gospel of Luke and the Sermon on the Mount is not one sermon. It would be a bit too long even in Jesus' day but it's rather teachings of Jesus that were gathered in these chapters. And the significance of the, quote, Sermon on the Mount is that really it is the Magna Charter of being a member of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defines very clearly who's in and who's not. He paints a picture of someone who's going to be a citizen in this kingdom, and he sets a whole new set of norms for us to live by. Now my observation about what Jesus says in these passages of scripture is like a foreign language to many of us. His words here are so counter-cultural that they go against everything that we believe in. What he says about how a Christian is to live flies in the face of everything you've been taught and everything that we hold to be of value. So the question is whether these words, the Beatitudes, are of any value and significance for us in the 21st century. I titled the sermon, If dot 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 then dot dot dot. Because I think you could read the Beatitudes with that kind of conditional clause. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Could be read... If you are poor in spirit, then the kingdom of heaven is there for you. I think you could read all of these in that if-then kind of formula, but I think you'd be reading them incorrectly because it's not declaring if you are poor or if you mourn or if you are merciful. 
Then you will get the reward of the kingdom of heaven. You will receive mercy. You will be comforted. It's not a formula of delayed gratification. Just hang on long enough and things will work out and get better. Instead, I think the passage is giving a blessing to those who are poor in spirit, to those who are mourning, to those who are merciful. Jesus declares in the first half of each beatitude that the people who are first in the kingdom of God are those who mourn are those who are merciful, are those who seek justice. In other words, he's turning our notion of life completely upside down. He's saying that the have-nots are now the haves. He's saying everything we believe to be powerful and important and full of authority are not that great in the kingdom of God. He is establishing a new set of norms for us if we're going to be part of this experience. Now the great ones now are not those, the great ones are now are those that are poor in spirit or who mourn or who hunger for righteousness or who are the peacemakers. What the world has declared to be weakness and to be liabilities are really assets in the kingdom of heaven. There are ways to realize the full meaning of life and what life is meant to be. There are blessings and not curses. There are strengths and not weaknesses. There are godly blessings and not demonic curses. So you can begin to see why I think some of this is a foreign language to many of us. How can the Beatitudes be more than just religious platitudes? How can these sayings of Jesus be more than just feel good and not really touch the inner core of who I am? We don't have time to look at all eight of the Beatitudes, but I would like to explore some of them to get at the real essence of what they're about. So turn in your bulletin, if you will, see how good a student you are, to the sermon notes, and you'll see the 12 verses of scripture that are listed there from Matthew 5. And I just want to make a suggestion of how to look at them in groups. These are my suggestions. This didn't come from some commentary, so you may want to argue with me, and so that'd be fine. It seems to me that verses 3 and 4 talk about my condition in life. What's going on with me? And who I am. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 is more more about my inner strength and my motivation and my integrity. And verses 9 and 10 are about my vocation, my purpose. So the poor in spirit and those who mourn in verses 3 and 4 talk about my condition, my situation, my status in life, what's going on with me. It's all about my condition. The next four, meek, hunger for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, deal with my inner convictions, deal with my motivations, deal with my integrity, deal with how I'm going to live out my life by following these four Beatitudes. And the last two, peacemakers and persecuted for righteousness, I think is my vocation. 
It's my calling. They define what in life I am supposed to be about. They declare why I'm on this earth. They declare what life is all about. So to unpack these a little bit more, I want to look at one beatitude in each of the sections. First of all, my condition. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's easy enough to translate that, that someone who's lost a loved one will be comforted. And that's part of what we talk about when we talk about mourning, that we shall be comforted. But there's another aspect to this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn for their own life, who mourn for the fact they've not said something they should have said at appropriate time. That they did not give a word of grace to someone when they should have. They didn't take a stand when they could have because of fear. Blessed are those who mourn in that way. So we mourn because of the death of a loved one or we mourn because we were not the person God intended us to be. And there will be comfort for us. God will be with us when we can't answer the question. God will be with us when we don't know all the answers. God will comfort us in time of a loss or in time of our own loss of ourselves. It seems to me that this past week was an incredible week of mourning. Last Sunday morning, after we got home from church, we learned that Kobe Bryant and eight others were killed in a tragic helicopter accident. And that has triggered a mourning season around this world as people have tried to figure out what's that all about. Last Monday was the 75th anniversary of the freeing of Auschwitz where over a million people were murdered. And that freeing of that concentration camp, at least for me, is a reminder that there is evil in this world and we have to take that evil seriously or else it will take us. And we as a congregation have been in mourning over the loss of our beloved pastor who left last fall and over Jess Reevely's death. And we have literally stared into each other's eyes as we've held each other and don't know what to say because they're not words that will communicate what we feel. But yet this community called Grace Covenant has found comfort Not understanding and explaining and having an answer, but literally being there for one another in this time of grieving. It's been a clear, at least for me, demonstration of what this beatitude is all about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second section is about my motivation and my inner strength. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We've talked several times in the last few weeks about righteousness. Righteousness is about a relationship between me and God, or righteousness is about a relationship between me and someone else. And the whole notion is that we have an agreement in this relationship, and with God, as long as I follow God's will, then I am righteous with God and God with me. And in relationships with one another, we have agreements. For example, two people are in right relationship when they marry. Two people are in right relationship when they enter a business contract. Two people are in right relationship because they're biologically kin to each other. 
In our marriage, I'll be faithful. In the business contract, I'll pay what I agreed to pay. And in the family, I will be there for you when you need me because blood is thicker than water. And as long as we live by these agreements, we're in right relationship. We are righteous. That's what it all means. But should either party fail in the agreement, then they are unrighteous and they've fallen out of that relationship. If one breaks the agreement, the relationship is unrighteous. The Beatitudes declare that the person who thirsts and hungers for righteousness shall be fulfilled. The person who wants to make sure those relationships work the person that goes the extra mile to make sure those two people get together, the person that does everything they can to ensure that our relationship continues are people hungering for righteousness and will be fulfilled because that is the meaningfulness about life. It seems to me that Rosa Parks fulfilled this beatitude as well as anybody. She sat down on that seat on that bus that wasn't allowed for her because of her skin color. But she knew that the relationships among people was wrong and they needed to be righted. It was her commitment and her motivation illustrates how relationships do matter. Her stand and her hunger and her thirst continues even until today and has had an impact on all that we are and who we are. She was hungry and she was thirsty. Are we hungry and are we thirsty to make sure relationships are right? The final section is, I think, our vocation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. When you think about being peacemakers, being our vocation. That is what I'm on this earth to do. Why I am breathing 70, 80, or 90 years. And then what happens is we have a new name. We are the child of God. And yet that began in our baptism when we were baptized into the faith and were called children of God. We are citizens of this new kingdom for the purpose of peacemaking. Now, peacemaking often requires tough love. It often requires speaking the truth in love. It often requires not just giving in. It often requires not just avoiding conflict. It's not just about keeping everybody happy. We in the church are notorious at not being good peacemakers. I never will forget how surprised I was as general presbyter of how much ministers avoid conflict. They run the opposite direction because they don't want to get anybody upset or mad or angry. They didn't want to deal with the truth and didn't want to have any kind of contentiousness even though the truth would set us free. And it happens in congregations. And with all due respect, I've seen it around this place. Certain of you have certain beliefs and certain habits and certain patterns. And I've heard others say, oh, you know, if we do that, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so is going to be quite upset. Remember the last time we did that? 
We never heard the end of it for months on end. Do we really want to do that? We love to play pretty in the church. And that's admirable, and we should. But sometimes we need to deal with the truth. And the truth, when spoken in love, enables us to be free and to come to a solution that is satisfactory for all parties. And to bring back that right relationship that I talked about earlier in righteousness to ensure that people are in harmony with one another. Our job is to be peacemakers. We don't have a choice. That's our calling. The Beatitudes, I think, are a set of how-tos for the Christian faith. They're a new set of norms for us to live as God's people. There are ways for us to live in this world. There are marching orders for us. I think there are values. But they're in direct conflict with everything we hold and know and practice. So I think we have to relearn how to live. We have to live a new way. We have to live a new life. We have to become a new being. For I believe when we do that, we are blessed and hopefully can be a blessing to others. And the prayer is, may God allow this to happen among us and throughout this world. Amen.